if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 8. Jordan read a big chunk of our text this morning. If you, as you were here reading with him in Acts chapter 7, I asked him to use that for our prayer time because it's so much text, I wanted to just try to get all this chunk together. We'll take several weeks going through this entire chunk of text, um, but we need to start reading it together. So let's start with Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we continue to study the book of Acts, this book penned by Luke and superintended by your Holy Spirit as your very inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, authoritative word. Father, we pray that as we consider this together, as we look at the ministry of Stephen, the church's first martyr, both how Luke describes him and his sermon and the reaction to it, Father, we pray that you would drive home deep into us by your Spirit, your Word. That you would cause us to understand that it is not unusual. In fact, it is historically the case again and again that those who proclaim the Gospel, your Word, those people are often opposed by the unbelievers. That eventually... Everyone chooses up sides. Repentance and turning to your son in faith or resolve to destroy those who are messengers. I pray that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would work powerfully in us, that we would desire to proclaim your son and to see people saved in the same way that Stephen did that we would be set, that we would be focused, fixed on giving our very lives if necessary so that Jesus is known among those who do not currently know him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been walking through the book of Acts, um, we have seen the people of Jerusalem favor the early Christians. In fact, on more than one occasion, we're being told that the Jews in Jerusalem actually 
favored or had great respect for, thought highly of the apostles and the early Christian church. Now, the religious leaders did not. The political leaders did not. So you had these sort of two groups that were formed around the apostles in the early church. You had the religious and political leaders who despised the apostles and the early church, and you had the general populace with whom the apostles in the early church were actually quite popular. They were well-respected. They were thought highly of. Now, now, they kept their distance. They would come around for some healing. They might come around to hear some preaching, but they generally kept their distance, the crowds did. However, while they kept their distance, they generally favored them. They generally spoke highly of them. In fact, they, they, they were popular enough, the apostles in the early church, that the religious leaders were actually afraid to kill the apostles for fear the, that the crowds might turn against them. That's what we've seen as we've gone to, through this text. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the crowds are flocking to them. Yes, they're being persecuted by the political and religious leaders, but they're still popular with the, with the people. And I guess what I'm driving at is everything changes here. In this text, that all changes. You remember there was a time in the Lord Jesus' life where he was popular with the crowds. Not popular with religious and political leaders, but had favor with the people. And eventually, a moment came in which the crowds joined the religious and political leaders and turned against the Christ. And we see a similar thing happen here in the life of the Christian church, in the life of the apostles. The crowds whom they were once fairly popular with now begin to turn on them. And it is here that we'll see a transition. Really, I, and I want to drive at this, this text from Acts 6-8 all the way through Acts 8-4 marks a transition in the book of Acts. As we look at this section that's marked off really by this whole sermon of Stephen that's preached for, I think, 60 verses I had Jordan read, we see a redemptive historical transition happen in the life of the church, in the life of the world. We see a massive transition occur. Redemptive history moves beyond God saving the Jews in Israel to now the gospel moving out to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. Stephen's sermon and Stephen's martyrdom mark a transition of the church from being really a national sect of Judaism, if you will, to now the church being an international faith among all the peoples. And we can see this movement just after Stephen is martyrdom, uh, martyred. So look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. We get this little note, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, we'll return to this text in the future because that is not just, even though it's only in your text, um, six words, that is not an incidental little sentence. The sentence becomes incredibly important to the book of Acts. But in Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So Stephen is martyred. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. See, up until then, the church was actually fairly favored. Now a great persecution comes against not just the apostles, but the whole church. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed to minister in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So we see this movement out of Jerusalem toward Judea and Samaria and eventually to the Gentile nations. And this movement follows a persecution, and a pers- that persecution follows the martyrdom of Stephen, which comes as a result of Stephen's preaching, his sermon. So this sermon really is fixed here in Acts as this central message that leads to the persecution of the church and the first martyr and then the spread of the church from Jerusalem to the nations. The church scatters and the gospel seed begins to be cast by evangelists in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Lord has been fulfilling his promise, by the way, to bring the gospel first to who? Uh, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's what? The power of salvation to all who believe, to the who? Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the Lord has been fulfilling his promise to bring the gospel to the Jew first, and now it's going toward the Gentiles. And Stephen's sermon in martyrdom marks the beginning of that transition. In fact, Stephen's sermon, if you're not aware of this, is one of, uh, I think it is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and certainly one of the most important sermons in the history of the world. The Lord uses this sermon and Stephen's martyrdom to begin the spread of the gospel to Gentile nations. The Lord uses an incredibly difficult, I want you to hear this, an incredibly difficult set of painful circumstances to further his gospel promises. And so today what I want to do is drill down into the introduction to Stephen and the charges brought against him. If you will, in Acts 6, 8 through 15, what we get is an introduction to really who Stephen is and the charges that are brought against him. That serves as the context for the sermon that follows. So this week, we'll drill down into the introduction to Stephen and really the charges brought against him, and in coming weeks, we'll drill down into his sermon and then his martyrdom. Today, though, I want to look at how Luke sets up Stephen, how he introduces him as the first martyr, the charges brought against him. And as we do, I'm hoping you'll understand this. I'm I'm hoping you'll understand this. As we look at Stephen, I want you to understand that it is inevitable. It is inevitable that opposition will come against the Lord's servants. Inevitable. Unbelievers have always reached the point, always reached the point, of either repentance before the Lord or rejection of the Lord and his messengers. There may be seasons of favor with unbelievers, but eventually, 
you continue to preach the gospel with clarity. There is a point coming in which unbelievers will either repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, or they will reject Jesus and his messengers. Did you hear that? You can't go around saying, don't shoot the messengers. That's precisely what they want to do. This doesn't just happen, guys, in nations or cities or crowds. This happens in individual relationships. You can have a decent relationship with an unbeliever, but the more you press on the gospel, there comes a day where they either receive Christ as Lord and repent, or they reject not only Jesus, but you, his messenger. It's inevitable. There is no long-term middle ground. You may have middle ground for a little short period of time. And by short period of time, I mean, I, I mean years, potentially. Okay? But in the history of the world, you understand you're a blip, right? So you may have favor for a little short period of time. America as a nation, the church in America as a nation, had favor for a couple of hundred years. You say, well, that's a long time. No, it's a blip. I have friends in Europe whose churches are older than our country. Twice as old as our country. We've had favor for a time, and it seems that the favor is coming to an end. There is no long-term middle ground. Eventually, unbelievers will choose sides. Either they will repent before the Lord, or they will reject the Lord and his messengers. I just want to drive that into you. And, and I want you to hear this because it often surprises us. It does, it surprises us. I, I think that's because we live in a prosperous nation. We live in a prosperous nation where the church has historically gained much favor among the people, and the result of this, I think, prosperity and comfort has been a kind of syncretism, a mixing of Christian theology with American ideology. And the kind of syncretism I'm talking about today is the kind of syncretism that assumes that if we honor the Lord, if we trust the Lord, if we obey the Lord, then we will have a prosperous life. And you could say, oh, well, that's true in those health, wealth, prosperity, gospel churches. Everybody knows that's a joke. But I, I want you to understand, that doesn't just happen in the health, wealth, prosperity gospels. That happens, that, that's the low-hanging fruit, right? It's easy to pick that fruit and mock it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Easy. It happens in general evangelical churches. We're going to give you ten principles on how to have a good marriage. If you just follow these things, your marriage will be good. Because we just have this American assumption that if we do the right thing, prosperity will follow. That isn't a biblical assumption. You understand that? That's an American assumption. Is it true biblically that if you're wise, things may go well for you? Yes, they may. I can see that in the Proverbs, for example. You can see that in Psalm 1. Is it true, however, that as Christians... In a world in which the devil opposes us, in which the world system opposes us, that if we just faithfully follow Jesus, always obedient, we will always prosper. 
No. We have a tendency, though, to believe that if we're the kind of people the Lord wants us to be, not just general evangelical churches, not just prosperity churches, but we, I see it all the time when I sit across the table from somebody, if I am the kind of person the Lord wants me to be, if I'm respectable and loving and I'm a good person, then people will generally approve of me, think highly of me, respect me, and love me. That's what I, I see that assumption with people all the time. You know how I know that assumption is there? Because I sit across from people and someone has turned against them and they look at me and say, I must have done something wrong. What did I do wrong? What if you did everything right and they turned against you because of that? That's possible. It's possible you love the Lord Jesus, you lived a consistently faithful and obedient life. I'm not saying a perfect life, okay? And people turned against you and mocked you for your holiness and hated you for the message you preached. We seem to think, what can we do better next time if we're just winsome enough? I, I, I do think you should be winsome. Please don't misunderstand me. Be winsome, by all means. Be kind, be gracious, be generous. But I get so sick of the argument I hear from Christian leaders that if we're winsome, the world will like us. That is just fundamentally not true. Do you have a better shot of the world liking you than if you're a jerk? Of course. Of course. But it's possible that if you're just winsome enough, the message will come across so clearly that people will really hate you. You think Jesus lacked any winsomeness? He was crucified. How about John the Baptist? Head cut off. Well, you think, well, John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey and stood out and called people broods of vipers. He's not very winsome. Okay, I get it, but the apostles, all but one that we're aware of, martyred. Stephen, martyred. The prophets of the Old Testament, murdered. Again and again and again. Are we somehow going to outperform them and doing it all right? So the world finally loves us? We just tend to assume that the Lord's approval of us, we tend to assume that the Lord's approval of us in Christ by his spirit will equal or equate to the world's approval of us, other people's approval of us. And so what I want to drive at is, what I hope to provide you with is two parts of really a surprising contrast. Ready? Two parts, that's it, of a surprising contrast. Here's the first part. The Lord's approval of Stephen, and here's the second part, the people's rejection of Stephen. So it's an interesting contrast. The Lord approves of Stephen, but the people reject him. So let's look at that together. Let's look at the first part of the contrast. The Lord's approval of Stephen. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Here we're told that Stephen is full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people, and it might at first seem surprising if you know the context because contextually, Stephen was chosen as one of the seven who was going to be helping the Greek-speaking Jewish widows by serving tables and making sure they got the daily distribution of food. That was what Stephen was initially set aside for. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 2. And the 12, that being the apostles, 
summoned the full number of disciples, that being the church, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, later in Acts called the seven, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so the church does. The apostles had given the church of picking seven godly men who were full of spirit and wisdom to serve tables. And the church does, look at verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen is chosen, and he's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So contextually, Stephen is told, it's told to us that Stephen is a born-again believer, a godly man who's full of the Spirit. He has godly wisdom. He has great faith in the Lord. That's what we know about Stephen. And we know he's chosen to be a church leader of some sort. One who's going to serve these tables and take care of these widows. However, in, in verse 8, we learn something else about Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. See, Stephen isn't it's not just approved by the Lord to be a typical leader in the church. We could see why they would approve Stephen to be a leader in the church. But something is different about this man. He's one of the seven, and he's marked off in a different way here. He's more than just the typical leader in the church. Stephen is approved by the Lord, and I want you to hear this, as an important redemptive historical figure. What do I mean by redemptive historical? The history of salvation. That's what I mean. In the history of salvation, God has brought along important figures who further the story leading to the Messiah. So you think you can start with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. You heard of some of these guys? Joshua, David, okay? Jesus, Peter, Stephen. These are men who are important in the furthering of God's salvific plan. And Stephen is approved by the Lord in that way. That's what verse 8 is signaling us to. He's full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. He preaches one of the most important sermons in church history, one we'll get to over the next several weeks. He's described like a prophet or apostle, or even like the Lord Jesus himself. In verse 8, full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. Now where have you heard that language before? Look at Acts 2 in verse 22. Acts 2 in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. See, God did mighty, through Christ, did mighty works and signs. Mighty wonders and signs, just like he's doing through Stephen. Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. A description of the early church. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. Go to Acts chapter 7 and look at verse 36 as Stephen's preaching and describing Moses. This man, Moses, Acts 7 verse 36 led them out, that's the Israelites, out of Egypt, performing what? Wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. See, this is, 
the kind of language where they're performing mighty signs and wonders, or mighty wonders and signs, is the kind of language that is continually in Acts ascribed to these major characters in redemptive historical in, in, in redemptive history. Redemptive historical history would be super redundant, wouldn't it? In redemptive history, they're, they're, they, that's the description of them. Jesus, the apostles, Moses, Stephen. Further, we're told this about Stephen in Acts 6, 9 through 10. Look there. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. In other words, there was, there was more than one synagogue in Jerusalem. This particular synagogue was called the synagogue of the freedmen. We think it was called the synagogue of the freedmen largely because these men in some way had been in bond, in bond slavery, and they were now freed from that. And they're from various parts of the dispersion. If you knew this, Israel had been dispersed among the nations, and they had come back to Jerusalem out of the dispersion and were now part of the freedmen or that synagogue of the freedmen. And it gives us, I think, the groups that belong to that synagogue and of the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia or Cilicia and Asia. In other words, all these groups from around the dispersion in this synagogue of the freedmen is the way um, the grammar seems to be. It doesn't say the synagogues of the freedmen. It says the synagogue singular, encompassing these groups. And what do the men in those synagogues do? In the synagogue do? What do they do? They rose up and disputed with Stephen. They started arguing with him, which means they're not arguing over the fact that he's out there healing people. They're disputing with him because he's preaching something. He's giving some message they don't like. And it says, but they could not withstand, notice this language, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We were told before that these men need to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and Stephen is clearly full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom because even in this argument, the Spirit has given him such wisdom that as these men are disputing with him, they can't withstand him. They can't contend with him. He's soundly defeating their arguments. Doing signs and wonders, soundly defeating their arguments, to which they all repented and said, wow, he's got it all right. He's got the spiritual power. Let's get on our knees and love Jesus together. No? They kill him. See, I mean, just, just as a short note, winning the argument intellectually does not equate with winning the person's heart. You can't do that. Only the Spirit does that through the Word. You can win the argument intellectually and still get killed at the end. Do you understand that? But he's full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, Jesus was as well. Go to Luke chapter 2. Keep your hand in Luke 6. I mean, excuse me, Acts 6 and go to Luke chapter 2. And listen to how Jesus is described. He's a 12-year-old boy. And he goes into the temple and begins a disputation, if you will, with the religious leaders in the temple. And we get this description in verse 46 of Luke 2. After three days... They found him, that being Jesus' parents, wondering where he was, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, his wisdom, and his answers. Now look what it goes on to say in verse 52. 
And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. In other words, Jesus is this man who was filled with the Spirit and with wisdom, just like Stephen is. Now go back to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, and look at Joseph, the description of Joseph, the one who takes Israel into Egypt during a famine, brings the family in after, you know, he's sold there into slavery by his brothers and rises to power. He brings his family in during a famine, and we read this about him in verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all, the Lord rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor, and what? Wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now go down to verse 22 in the description of Moses. And Moses was instructed in what? All the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. So Stephen is marked off like one of these prophets, one of these apostles. He's described in a similar way. He's like Moses. He's like the twelve. He's like Jesus, full of grace, wisdom, and the Spirit. But there's more about Stephen. Look back at Acts chapter 6 and look at the description at the end of that passage in verse 15. As the people are angry with him, look what it says. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, he's been dragged before the Sanhedrin here, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's an interesting note for Luke to make, isn't it? His face was like the face of an angel. Now, why does he make that note about Stephen? What's Stephen being charged with? Look at Acts 6.11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words. Now, notice against who? Moses and God. Notice, he's blaspheming Moses and therefore Yahweh. Now, look what it goes on to say. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses. Now, in other words, they're violating the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They're just flat out planning to violate that commandment. They set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. Where's the holy place? The temple. He never ceases to speak words against God's dwelling place. And against what? The law. God's word. He speaks against where God dwells, his house, and he speaks against what God says, his word. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And he's blaspheming Moses. Now look what it goes on to say. For we have heard him say, verse 14, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that being the temple, and will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us. In other words, what they're saying here is really one charge. The real charge is the charge of blasphemy against the Lord. Stephen is blaspheming the Lord. What's the penalty for that? Death. We ought to put him to death, he's blaspheming the Lord. It's serious. He's being accused of rejecting Yahweh, blaspheming his name. And who was the law given by? that he's rejecting, Moses. And who are the instructions for the tabernacle 
delivered by that he's saying ought to be destroyed, Moses. And when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, if you remember the book of Exodus, when he comes down from Mount Sinai with the law and with the instructions to build a tabernacle, what is the appearance of Moses' face? It's shining with the glory of God. He's, it's, it's this, like the face of an angel, is a, is a circumlocution. It's, it's a way of speaking. His face is shining with the glory of God. It's, it's shining like a messenger of God. It's, it's shining like Moses' face shined when he came down from the mountain to deliver the law and the instructions to build the tabernacle. And why is that note there from Luke? Why does the Holy Spirit superintend that? Why do we need to know that? Because what's happening is the Lord is saying of Stephen, as he makes his face shine like Moses, like an angel, the Lord is saying of Stephen that he is getting Moses right. That he's rightly interpreting the word of God. That they've got it wrong. And Stephen has it right. Moses appeared this way Moses appeared this way when he came down from Mount Sinai because he'd been with the Lord. The Lord was with him. He was the Lord's messenger, and he was visibly marked as having the Lord with him. And that's what we hear about Stephen. He was a messenger of the Lord, like Moses performing signs and wonders, like Moses with wisdom and the Spirit, complete with the favor of the Lord upon him. He was a messenger like the Old Testament prophets. He was a messenger like the apostles. He was even like Jesus, our Lord himself. Now, I'm not sure a brother can receive a much more positive description than Luke gives to Stephen here. I'm not sure how to get a much more ringing endorsement. Here is a man recognized as godly, full of wisdom, faith, and the Spirit by his own church congregation, a man who's ready to serve others, a man who is supernaturally able to dispute with those who attempt to debate him and stop their mouths. You know, he's got the kind of debate skills you always wished you had. You drive away thinking, if I just said this, right? You guys rehearsed that? Has that ever happened to anybody here? If I just said, Stephen never had to drive away feeling that way. Not just because he didn't have a car. He didn't have to drive away feeling that way because he had supernatural spiritual wisdom to dispute and win. A man full of grace and power who shows mercy and kindness to those who are hurting and needy. A man whose face shines like an angel, like someone who's been with the Lord as one of his messengers. And what's the response to him? What's the response to Stephen? Do the unbelievers love him? Do they respect him? Do the unbelievers look up to him? Do they, they speak well of him? Is that what happens? I mean, because, folks, if we look at this passage and we think about what do I need to do better next time to win those people over as I share the gospel with them so that they'll actually like me even if they reject the message? Maybe we ought to just remove a little bit of guilt from the equation, take off some of the burden that is not yours, and realize that a man who's full of grace and power, who's doing signs and wonders, who's 
caring for and serving the needy and the poor, who can supernaturally dispute any charge that comes against him and answer it in a way that stops the mouths of his opponents, who can preach the gospel in all truth, who is literally shining with the glory of God, he gets killed. The crowds hate him. They despise him. They turn against him. That's the second part of the contrast I want you to see this morning, the people's rejection of Stephen. The Lord approves of Stephen. The people reject him. Look at verse 9. It says, Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, and then it goes on to describe them. I went through them already. Look, last phrase, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Why? What was he doing that provoked an argument? Now, he's healing people in, in, in verse 8, but it says something interesting there about the wonders. We, we come to these texts and we say, oh, wonders and miracles. And the text doesn't actually use the word miracles. It uses the word signs. Why does it use the word signs? Because signs point to something. You know, a sign is something that points to something else. So if you have a very sick person who's about to die, and you see a sign that says hospital, and then, you know, just a little bit further is the entrance to the hospital, you understand that you don't stop in front of that sign and, and place the person in front of the sign and go, now somebody's going to help them. You understand that sign is pointing to the hospital where you take them in, right? Well, that's what these miracles were doing. These healings, they were signs. They were pointing to something. What were they pointing to? They were pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ has not only died on the cross, but he's risen from the dead. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence he rules and reigns, and he's poured out his spirit, and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God has begun. And it's being evidenced in these miracles, these signs, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the resurrected and ascended Lord. That the resurrection is coming. It's like a taste of the kingdom to come when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. There will be no more sickness or death or tears. They're getting a little taste of it here. It's a sign that's followed by a word. When we're told we're having signs, we know that what follows those signs is preaching. We see it in every occasion. They don't just do signs. They didn't tell you what the sign points to. So what are they disputing with? Are they disputing with the healing? No, they're disputing with the preaching that that healing is pointing to, the message. The sign's important. The message is more important. The message is more important. He's preaching a message of some kind, so they're, they're disputing with them, and they tell us how they're hearing the message. And by the way, it's important to understand that while I, Stephen's preaching the truth, they're not hearing the truth. They're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and they begin to twist his words. So they make accusations in verse 10. They could not withstand the spirit with which he's speaking. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and set up false witnesses, saying, this man never 
ceases to speak words against this holy place and this law. In other words, he's clearly preaching, and what they're doing is they're twisting his message. They're arguing about the content of his sermons. They're claiming that he's blaspheming the Lord and his word. Now, in Stephen's sermon, he actually addresses these two charges. His entire sermon, all 60 verses, addresses these two charges. Is he blaspheming the law? And is he blaspheming God's temple? He addresses those. But just so we're clear this morning, the charges are false charges. They're false. We know much of what Stephen was speaking. We know that he was likely teaching. I want you to hear this just for our purpose this morning because I don't have time to get into the whole sermon today. We know that Stephen is likely teaching that Jesus fulfilled the law, not that he abolished it. He fulfilled it, not that he abolished it. Why do we know that? Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We also know that Stephen was not speaking against the temple, but was likely pointing out that Jesus is the true temple. Why do we know that? Because Jesus taught that in John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, the people were turning against Stephen because he was preaching Jesus. Crucified, resurrected, ascended, and dwelling with his people by his Spirit. He was teaching the truth that Jesus is the one who kept God's law, at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our violation of God's law. Throughout his life, Jesus kept the precept of God's law that we failed to keep on our behalf. In his resurrection, Jesus is vindicated before all now as holy, innocent, undefiled. So that we might be justified, vindicated with him, declared righteous along with him. He is the one in whom God dwells. Jesus is the one who tabernacles among us. He is the dwelling place of God. He is the only way to where God dwells. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. See, your only hope in life is to turn to Jesus. And what Stephen was telling them is that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Lord, and thus there is salvation in no other name. If you don't turn to him, I want you to hear this because they heard it in Stephen's audience. If you don't turn to Jesus, you will be damned for your sins. Eternal, conscious, torment in hell. The place where the worm does not die. Where the smoke never ceases to rise. That isn't something that's encouraging news. That's bad news to tell you. 
No one believes they deserve that. No one. In our own flesh, we all fundamentally think God owes us something. Certainly doesn't owe us hell. It is not until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see how holy God is, how true His law is, and how deeply you have offended His character that you begin to believe you actually deserve hell and that you need a Savior and that Jesus alone is that Savior and that He's wholly sufficient to save you. If you don't turn to Jesus, you'll be damned. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no other. We look to Him and we're saved. That's what Stephen is being relentlessly clear about. That's what gets him killed. Now, at first, Stephen's ministry and preaching was an irritant. At first, it just irritated them. That's how it always starts, isn't it? Then they didn't want to hear it, so they argued with him. But they weren't prevailing in the argument because the Holy Spirit was empowering Stephen with wisdom. So, because they're not prevailing in the argument, they trump up charges against him. They made false accusations. They start lying about him and even bring legal charges against him, and eventually they kill him. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Incidentally, Jesus and Stephen are the only two people in the New Testament who refer to Jesus as the Son of Man in this regard, standing at the right hand of God or seated, in Jesus' case, at the right hand of God. And we'll look at that in coming weeks. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Mirroring what Jesus says to the Father at the cross, isn't it? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You guys follow the parallels here? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. He breathed his last. And Saul approved of his execution. See, they killed him just as they killed our Lord Jesus. And he was approved by the Lord even in this instance. As he is killed, that's why he's given this vision. The Lord's approving him. The Lord's standing with him on his side as judge of all the earth, advocating on his behalf. And we're told in Isaiah 3.13 that the Lord stood to judge the peoples. We're told in Daniel 7.13-14 that the Son of Man comes to the right hand of the Father from which He receives the kingdom 
he receives the rulership of all the peoples. And now these two pictures come together as Stephen is being executed, is being martyred. He looks up to heaven and sees the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father from whence he rules and reigns all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus stands up. Why? Because that's what the Lord does when he stands to judge the peoples. And why is he judging them? Because they've just killed an innocent man. They've just martyred one of his. And he's standing with Stephen. Here's what I want you to grasp from all this. Opposition against God's representatives has always come from unbelievers, and it always will. Stephen sums that up in verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen was approved by the Lord and opposed by the unbelieving people. The people do not wish to repent and trust in Jesus, so they oppose those who are his messengers. That's what happens. And the order of the opposition here is pretty typical. John Stott sums it up this way. The opposition against Stephen degenerated from from theology through slander to violence. The same order of events has often been repeated, Stott says. At first, there's serious theological debate. When this fails, people start a personal campaign of lies. Finally, they resort to legal or quasi-legal action in an attempt to rid themselves of their adversary by force. It often happens, folks. You stand for the Lord and his word, eventually people will stand against you. We see it all over the world. Christians are being persecuted and martyred today in unprecedented numbers. Think, oh, this is something that happened in the early church. You need to understand, we live in a very safe kind of bubble here. There are more Christians persecuted and martyred on a worldwide basis this year than there's ever been in the history of the world. This isn't just something that happened back then. It's something contemporary that's happening. And what are they being persecuted and martyred for? Being Christians. Loving Jesus. Speaking his name. For telling people that Jesus alone saves. Now we might not in the USA face physical persecution yet. Some believers are facing various legal repercussions. But we aren't even being physically persecuted yet. And I don't know if we ever will be here or not. I'm not sure. I'm certainly not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But trust me, it is no picnic to have your name slandered. And that does happen here. It isn't fun to have people spread lies about you. And that does occur here. It isn't pleasant to be mocked and gossiped about. And if you start telling your coworkers and family and friends and neighbors about Jesus, you will be slandered and mocked. And I guess what I'm hoping for by way of application, you say, what do I do with all this? I guess what I'm hoping for by way of application is that the Spirit of God will move in you 
to recognize that those around you are damned to eternal hell and that the Lord Jesus is not only powerful enough to save them from hell, but to offer them great eternal joy in knowing him. And I'm praying that the Lord will so overwhelm you with the gospel of grace he's shown to you, the goodness of our Lord Jesus that you know, that you will count your own life as nothing and will be willing to suffer as a fool to make Jesus known. That you'll be willing to endure the humiliation of your reputation for the sake of the exaltation of Jesus' reputation. That you might ask, is there any any reason for encouragement when I'm mocked and slandered for Christ? Yes, there is reason for encouragement. The prophets and the apostles were mocked and slandered for speaking about Christ. Jesus was slandered and mocked, and Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God, and he will vindicate his name, and I want you to hear this, he will vindicate yours. So your concern with yourself, I hope, goes away. I hope you repent of it. It's a constant battle, but I hope you begin the repentance today. And that you make your concern the reputation of Jesus' name. Make your concern the reputation of Jesus' name. And let Jesus be concerned with the reputation of your name. Let him care for it. He will. If not now, he will on that great day. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would be exalted in all the earth, that he would be known from our lips and through our lives, that we would preach about Jesus clearly, that you would give us a burden to name him among those who do not know him, among our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors. We pray that you would give them repentance. We know that we are an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others, and Father, we pray that you would make us a great aroma of life, that your spirit would work powerfully in bringing many people to salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. That you would give us the courage to speak his name, whatever the cost to ourselves, knowing that one day Christ will vindicate our names on that great day. Cause us to look forward to that. Overwhelm us with a sense of, of need to speak about Jesus, the only and all-sufficient Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.